Hello and good evening. Thanks so much for tuning in. I'm Brett Tannehill, WLRH's General Manager and host of the Public Radio Hour. Stay tuned to the next hour as we bring you stories from the Sundial Writer's Corner and a few funny tales from the WLRH staff during a Sundial Christmas right after the NPR newscast. But first, I hope you'll take a moment to reflect on how wonderful it is to have a radio station like WLRH dedicated to your community and the Tennessee Valley, covering local news that makes a difference to you and your neighbors, shining the spotlight on our amazing performing arts scene and nonprofit community, and doing other wonderful things in our community. These things don't happen by accident and need your support. So if you've yet to become a member, we sure need your help during the next year to make sure our programming mission stays strong. If you can, become a member at WLRH.org, then click Donate. Thanks for listening, and thanks for supporting the station. Stay tuned. A Sundial Christmas is next. This is the Public Radio Hour, a weekly mix of special programs, community conversations, and homemade radio features. And tonight... We hope to feed your holiday spirit with some homemade radio stories spun by our amazing wordsmiths in the Sundial Writer's Corner and some of our staff members. We'll hear about ugly ornaments, a church pageant, gifts of love, and even a ventriloquist. We'll also have some special visits from master storyteller Catherine Tucker Wyndham. But let's start with the Christmas tree, adorned in lights and memories. Here's Sundial writer Rosemary McMahon. Decorating the Christmas tree each year is always a bittersweet event for me. So many of our ornaments are associated with memories, and this poem comes from those memories. Reverie. The tree stands bare in the spill of white candlelight that beckons remembrance, the still air laden with pungent pine. I unwrap memories lifted from silk-worn boxes, and passing years emerge, reflecting faces mirrored in each round and shiny ball. A piece of crumpled tissue drops, and here is the rocking horse suspended on a crimson string that marked my son's first outing, creamed soup with his aunties when he was three. And here, the fading Polaroid photo of my daughter's smiling face pasted in the middle of a holiday bell, the sparkling glitter reminiscent of her five-year-old's laughter. An angel carved from seashell reminds me of my once best friend, now divorced and distanced. We birthed our daughters the same month. A cross-stitched cherubim handmade by a companion along the way who died too young, takes center place near the top of the tree. A widowed neighbor designed the snowman decked in felt with his black pipe. For each of my mother's daughters some 40 years ago, and the sweet gum ball covered in tinfoil by the hands of my husband's father, gone 10 years, is a mirror of his own Christmases past. Like rainbow-hued lights, heart-rooted presence is wound about fragrant branches that fill the room, reaching to the ceiling, evidence of the many incarnations I have lived, precious as the first brush of silent snow.
This is Jenny Kennedy, host of Morning Edition and Morning Blend. I actually haven't gotten a Christmas tree yet, but if I do, I'm going to get the scruffiest live tree-like object I can find for real cheap and set it on my front deck outside my living room window. I'll throw on some weatherproof ornaments and maybe a strand of lights and maybe some peanut butter and birdseed. After years of cleaning up smashed ornaments and water spilled on my wood floors from pet-related holiday festivities and getting pine needles and goo stuck in my hair while watering the tree, I'm thinking setting it outside is the best option for me and my house full of critters. The cats can still enjoy it without destroying it. The birds can taunt the cats while enjoying something to eat. I can water it with a hose and celebrate the season without too much cleanup. Now that I think about it, that's that's a pretty good idea. Now I just got to go find a tree. I'm Jessie, the Promotions and Membership Specialist at WLRH, and this year I got two Christmas trees, both fake because I do not have time to water real Christmas trees in my house. I have two small children, a six-year-old and a two-year-old, and every year they have messed with what I consider the main tree slash my tree, and I got tired of it. So I bought a small four-foot multicolor lights because white lights are the best ones but that's the ones that are on my tree and they can mess with that little tree all they want it's in my daughter's room they rearrange it every single day but they leave my tree alone well we needed a christmas tree here at the wlrh station and there's a tree here there are a couple of trees here in the closet i pulled one out on friday afternoon and opened the box, there were about 5,000 pieces to that tree. I've never put together an artificial tree before. I've never used one, and I'm not familiar with that whole process. Not super mechanical. I fixed it the best way that I could. I pulled out my cell phone and called my dad and said, Dad, would you please go and cut me a little cedar tree? We need a tree here at the station. And so he and my mother went out in the truck. They rode around the farm. They cut down four trees for my perusal, and on Sunday I went over to see the trees and, of course, chose the best one. It is here in the lobby. It's a cedar that is about four and a half feet tall, and it has some girth to it, and it makes the lobby smell nice. If anybody would like to drop by, you can take a peek at the hand-cut cedar tree from Lawrence County. I'm Elaine Oaks. I'm the Corporate Underwriting and Support Manager here at WLRH. And a favorite Christmas tree-related memory for me is when I was a little girl, we would always get a live tree. And my dad and I would go out on our quest for this live tree, and we would always start pretty close to home. And then we'd see a tree we liked, but we would go to almost every other tree lot in the city before finally coming back to the one closest to home. We would usually get it home, it would be humongous, and we would have to chop the top off of it just to get it to fit into our space. And then the other thing is, my dad created a cardboard star and covered it in aluminum foil. And that was always our very simple Christmas tree star. 
Greetings and salutations. My name is Nate Emery, the host of Valley Sounds, our 100% local music program we have here on Saturdays on WLRH, and I'm one of the uh, afternoon hosts for All Things Considered. I have a Christmas tree story. We've got two dogs, two pit bull dogs, and when they were puppies, in particular my first dog, his name is Nero, he had uh, developed this habit of... uh, trying to pee on specific types of bushes, in particular rosemary and sage in our garden. And the first year we had him, when we put a actual live Christmas tree in the living room, he must have gotten confused, thinking that was the rosemary bush from the yard that we would continuously have to shoo him away from. So he lifted his leg and, well, did his business right there in the living room. Needless to say, we're kind of a little shocked, Ben. We drug him away and... (laughs) Ended up at that point having to spray around the tree after we cleaned it up to keep him from trying to repeat that behavior. But there's my Christmas tree story from our very first Christmas with our puppy Nero. Hey, I'm Katie Ganaway, WLRH's host for All Things Considered, Morning Edition on Fridays and Arts Underground. At a Christmas tree-centric event a few years back, I saw a man and his family with photos of a woman hanging all over the Tannenbaum. They couldn't contain their excitement. Eager for the moment, the man would ask for the lady's hand in marriage. Sad to say, when I checked back in later in the evening, their faces had grown sullen, packing up the components of what was to be a merry scene. I guess she declined his proposal, but I hope their holidays are more joyous this year. Don't give up on love, folks, and merry greetings to you, Tennessee Valley. I'm Tom Fralick, your Monday and Wednesday morning blend host. And as far as a Christmas tree story, I don't have too much to tell because until this year, I haven't had a Christmas tree for 20 years. But this year was the exception. We have a little tree on a little table with twinkly little white lights on them. I've never seen lights this small. They're battery operated. The thing about this tree that's special is that a lot of the ornaments are copies of ornaments that have been on the White House Christmas trees over the years. I think most of them came from the Clinton administration. Anyway, they're made by the same shop that made the originals that hung in the White House. A couple of years ago, even when we didn't have a Christmas tree, we had a Ruth Bader Ginsburg decoration that I absolutely loved, and I was looking forward to hanging that this year, but we couldn't find it. Anyway, we have that little Christmas tree, and we also have a menorah that I got at one of the concentration camps a few years ago when I was in Germany, from Dachau, actually. It's a little menorah, but I just love it, and it brings back lots of memories. I'm Dory Nutt, one of the Morning Blend hosts here at WLRH and producer of the Sundial Writer's Corner. My family never bought Christmas trees when I was growing up. We set out each December to look for a good one on our farm or our neighbor's farms. Cedar trees were abundant, so no one minded if you took one for your holiday celebration. One year, my brother and I accompanied my dad on one of his hunting trips to the woods, and there we saw it, the perfect tree. It was full, it was straight, it was tall. This would be our tree. One problem, we didn't have a saw along with us or an axe or anything else we could cut the tree down with. But 
we had a shotgun. So in true Alabama style, we shot that tree down. Didn't it ruin the tree, you ask? Well, it was not mortally wounded. It was just awfully frayed around the bottom. So once we got it home, we had to amputate a good portion of the trunk. It was not quite as tall as the magnificent tree we had imagined, but it still looked great. And it had a great story, one that lives on in our family lore. All the Ugly Ornaments Southern Octobers are bittersweet for me. Like the grass beneath my feet, I'm reluctant to let go of the memory of summer's warmth. Evenings are filled with nostalgic scents of wood smoke and the musty tang of leaves grown brittle and weary as an old man's sigh. Friends grow excited about this time, thinking ahead to the holidays. But my mind travels back in time, even as I peruse holiday cards and deliberately select a misshapen pumpkin. You see, the holidays of my childhood weren't the stuff of Pinterest, symmetrical trees and elaborate mantle displays. Rather, they were filled with the messy stuff of glue and glitter and homemade Toll House cookies, always a bit burnt on the bottom from Mom's thin cookie sheets. My brothers and their friends filled the house with rock music that clashed with Dad's vinyl collection of Christmas songs, sung in Spanish, reminiscent of his native Mexico. Mom always insisted on a real tree. The more lopsided and sad-looking, the better. She was tender-hearted that way, never wanting to see something or someone left lonely or unwanted. Decorating was interesting. We'd lug dusty boxes from the attic and untangle moldy popcorn strings from ornaments with the names of pets who'd crossed over the Rainbow Bridge years before I was born. And I'd hear again the tales of Skippy, the best dog ever, as we strung tinsel that sparked and clung to us with static. There were more ugly ornaments, most crafted by hands not gifted with talent or any sense of aesthetic. Popsicle stick elves my brothers and I made with frightening googly eyes. Paper plates filled with plaster of Paris imprinted with our tiny hands that were painted to look like turkeys or angels, hard to tell which. And Mom lovingly hung every one of these on the back of the tree. Each year, when she pulled one particular ugly ornament from the boxes, I was transported back to a special day. She allowed each of us kids to select an ornament from a shop on the square. This was a beautiful place filled with brightly colored spools of tartan plaid ribbons spilling into the aisles, perfectly shaped artificial trees twinkling with fairy lights, and what seemed to me real Christmas carols drifting from speakers like silver bells and Frosty the Snowman sung in English. We took our time making our selections. My brothers each came away with a glass-blown, delicate creation that brought smiles and nods of approval from the shop owner. A toy soldier, Santa, a sleigh. Then they all turned to see what I, the youngest child, had chosen. A ballerina from the Nutcracker, perhaps? Oh, but no, here was a pink animal of unrecognizable species. The bewhiskered nose and paws indicated a mouse, but the curly tail and hog-shaped ears made us lean more toward a pig. The shop owner rang up that sale with a discount. Mom smiled and shrugged, no accounting for a child's taste. Each year, we carefully added pig mouse to our Charlie Brown's tree branches. 
Today, as I kicked through leaves trying to unbury patches of green grass on my morning run, I thought of the way October ushered in holidays so slowly as a child, and how quickly now those days speed toward us once pumpkins appear on doorsteps. Soon it'll be time for me to pull dusty boxes from the attic, boxes that hold plaster of Paris thumbprints our son made nearly two decades ago. And when I, like my mom before me, place those near the back of the tree, I recognize that's a place of honor, not facing our small living room, but rather displaying them in the window for neighbors and friends and all who come to call to admire. Truly, my mother's daughter, I find the things that decorate our hearts, all the ugly ornaments that make up perfectly imperfect lives, precious and timeless. It's time to get the Christmas trees. I'm, uh, I hope I'm going to get one decorated more fully this year than I did last year. I had such a good idea, but I just didn't give myself time enough to do it. But I've been saving medicine bottles all year. Those little plastic containers about three inches high and green. And I'm going to have the prettiest garland of them on my tree. And all of it is what I have taken medicine from through the year. It's going to be the most expensive garland that anybody ever put on a tree. Right now I'm trying to find some big red beads, wooden beads, to go between each green bottle. And it's it's going to be fine. I'm, the main problem is getting the label off the bottles with the prescription number and all that kind of stuff on there. I've got some soaking out outside the garage now, and I hope the labels will come off easier. And then you have to burn a hole. I use an old um, ice pick, heat it red hot on the gas stove, and uh, use it to punch a hole in the bottom of the bottle and in the top so you can thread it on a nice red ribbon or red string with a red bead between each one. Last year I had a lot of wooden spools that I painted red and used a wooden spool between, but I hate to waste my wooden spools. Don't mind wasting the the medicine bottles. But I like to try different ways to decorate for Christmas, not use the same thing. And I think it was year before last. We had a fine Christmas tree decorated with cookie cutters. And they were quite adequate. Uh, I don't... Good housekeeping. None of those good magazines have ever come to me to get uh, decorating ideas. Martha Stewart has not called me at all. But we have enjoyed just using what we had here. And one year I decorated it with pictures, photographs of uh, family and friends and put little uh, little borders around the photographs of uh, things that interested those people like at that time, I think my one of my grandsons was just living off of popcorn, and I just popped a lot of popcorn and pasted it all around his picture and hung it on the tree with a big red ribbon, and everybody had something special like that. And it's, you know, it's, nobody's going to come and say, oh, how pretty. 
they might say, what in the world made you think of doing that? And that's all right, too. Something new for Christmas tree decorations. That was master storyteller Catherine Tucker Wyndham with some tree trimming ideas. Miss Wyndham passed away back in 2011, but her stories live on in the Sundial Writer's Corner with permission from her family. We also heard memories of some not-so-pretty ornaments from Sundial writer Melissa Ford Thornton and stories of Tannenbaum from WLRH staff members Jenny Kennedy, Jesse Lou Allen, Julie Williams, Tom Froelich, Nate Emery, Katie Ganaway, Elaine Oaks, and Dory Nutt. This is the Public Radio Hour on 89.3 Huntsville, and tonight it's a sundial Christmas as we bring you homemade radio stories from local voices that we hope will warm your heart. The Christmas tree is an important part of this holiday season, and so is the nativity, sometimes portrayed by well-meaning children, and as sundial writer Kathy Main tells us, sometimes with unintended results. When I was in elementary school, I was thrilled to be cast as the angel in my Chattanooga Church's Christmas morning service. As I carefully donned my gold tinsel halo and white cotton robe, I was determined to be the most reverent and awe-inspiring angel ever. When the Presbyterian congregation began singing the first carol, I slowly raised my hands in gracious benediction over the manger and lifted my face in praise to the heavens um, or ceiling above. Well, my dramatic pose lasted just short of two verses, and I slowly lowered my arms to regain circulation. Hoping that no one had noticed my lapse of reverence, I raised my arms again held them, and then lowered them inch by inch. For an hour, our tableau had an angel that looked as if she were flying in slow motion. Well, the drama of the little nativity was simply too great for one of the five-year-old sheep. He saw his family in the pews and quickly toddled off stage. One of the wise men locked his knees and gently sank to the floor in a faint. Another wise man decided that kneeling for an hour was unbearable, so she sat cross-legged for the latter half of the service. The shepherd watched the crook of his staff lazily go back and forth like a metronome. Sweet little Mary sat on a small stool and nodded in sleep, and my angel just kept flying. 
The adults hid their laughter afterwards and solemnly pronounced the service a success. However, two performances were given that morning, the first and the last time that children under the age of 12 were asked to remain in live nativity mode for an entire worship service. I sometimes think of that earnest little angel when I reach life during the holidays overload. She helps me remember that it's not my efforts to make things just right that matter most. For if we try too hard to keep our wings and our drama in motion, we may miss the small, comforting, much more important presence in the manger. We're celebrating holiday stories and memories with the Sundial Christmas here on the Public Radio Hour on 89.3 member-supported Huntsville Public Radio. I'm Brett Tannehill. Thanks to Sundial Writer's Corner contributor Kathy Main for sharing that story. Stay tuned. We'll be right back with some gifts of love from Catherine Tucker Wyndham and the story of stuffed animal betrayal and ventriloquism from Sam Mitchell. Thanks for listening, and Merry Christmas to you and yours. Operation Christmas Cleanup, hosted by SWATA Operation Green Team and the City of Madison, offers you two off-site event locations to responsibly dispose of your electronics, batteries, cardboard boxes, and live Christmas trees, but no artificial Christmas trees, please. You can bring your materials Saturday, January 8th from 8 a.m. to 1 p.m. to John Hunt Park on Airport Road in Huntsville or Madison School Stadiums on Celtic Drive in Madison. Info at swdahsb.org. Introducing Blast, the Huntsville-Madison County Public Library's local music streaming service. Featuring over 40 musicians from the Tennessee Valley, Blast is the library's living music collection and it is set to grow each year. Local music is an important part of Huntsville's future and the library is here to connect you to it. Stream anytime, anywhere. Information at blast.hmcpl.org. The North Alabama Coalition for the Homeless reminds you that while many of us have a warm place to sleep during the winter season, some are less fortunate. You can help those who live on the street by donating new or gently used blankets, coats, gloves, anything you would want to have outside on a cold winter's day. Information at nachcares.org. This is A Sundial Christmas on the Public Radio Hour on 89.3 WLRH. And tonight we're hearing holiday stories from contributors to the WLRH Sundial Writers' Corner. You can check out a new Sundial story every Monday morning at 9 o'clock and explore hundreds of archive stories in the Sundial Writers' Corner archive at WLRH.org, where you can also find information on how to submit your story for possible inclusion. Just go to the website and look under Programs. Once again... Here's Master Storyteller, Katherine Tucker Wyndham. When I was growing up, uh, Thurza, our cook down in Thomasville, who's the best friend I ever had, as Christmas would approach, she would uh, remind me that Santa Claus was really watching me and I better be good. Uh, I would get ashes and switches in my stocking. Well, that was embedded in my thinking, and 
I was very apprehensive about the approach of Christmas because I would begin to think of all the little misdeeds that I had been guilty of and know that Santa Claus had seen that. And and it, it would bother me, and I'd be almost frightened to open my eyes on Christmas morning. But I never got those ashes and switches. And what I got instead were surprises in a stocking that I'd hang. I don't remember that we ever had specially made Christmas stockings. You always hung one of your own stockings. and I would try to find, we wore long stockings then. It was wintertime and cold. And, and I'd find the biggest one I could find as a child and hang it up and and it would be filled with surprises on Christmas morning. Fresh fruit, uh, satsumas, which people now call tangerines. They don't know any better. They don't know about Satsuma, Alabama, where the satsumas came from. And it would have candy, hard candy, and it didn't get any other time of the year. Some peppermints and small toys and Maybe a, a little piece of jewelry, not expensive, but a little piece wrapped up down near the toe. But always in the toe of the stocking, there was a dime wrapped up in tissue paper. It had been the custom in my mother's family for generations that every child's stocking would have a dime wrapped in tissue paper down in the toe. And so I always had a dime in the toe of my stocking, and my children had dimes in the toes of their stocking, and my grandchildren have dimes in the toes of their stockings. And, and I hope it'll go on forever. I don't know how it started or why, but a dime was a lot of money when I was a little girl. It would buy a lot of candy, a drink, and well, two drinks cost a nickel apiece. But I'd be pleased with that dime, but it was the Christmas tree that I wanted to see Beautiful cedar, always. It was brought in by a friend, Oma. Decorated with ornaments that I wish I still had. Uh, I don't know what happened to them. There were glass buds that had long, sweeping, thin but sweeping tails, and they were colored and clipped onto the branches, and... I remember a ship that was in full sail. It was all glass. I don't know where my parents got those ornaments or what happened to them, but I wish I still had them. And there was always a doll, a new doll. And every doll that I ever got at Christmas time had smut on its face to show that it had come down the chimney. Uh, <laughs> And I, I liked that. I was glad to know that Santa Claus had come down the chimney the way he was supposed to do. And that he had also eaten the milk and the cookies that I had put out on the hearth for him. There were, the plate was always empty and the glass was empty. And the Christmas morning, just to walk in and to see the tree, it had uh, real candles on it. There was about three inches high, red and green, and they fit in metal holders that were had clips on the end of them, and you clipped them onto the branches. And the candles were there all the week preceding Christmas, and of course they were only lighted on Christmas morning. 
and it'd be that whole tree aglow with real candles burning on it. And it was just so beautiful, so beautiful, with a star on the top that I had been lifted up to put there every year. My older brother Wilson used to lift me up so I could put the star in the top of the tree. And under it, not expensive gifts, but gifts that meant something to you, books and games and new dress for my doll, gifts of love, which is what Christmas is all about. out there remember the Sears catalog, that wondrous phone book-sized shopping encyclopedia of pretty much anything a kid or adult might want for Christmas. Sundial contributor Sam Mitchell remembers it and brings us this story. Everyone loves a ventriloquist. Imagine, a poorly disguised King Saul seeks anonymous consult with the witches of Endor about an upcoming battle. The last necromancer and magician had mysteriously disappeared from the kingdom when their powers fell short. You see, soothsaying does not work on demand. Recognizing Saul through his makeup, one of the witches improvises by grabbing the closest inanimate object, which happened to be a wine flask, and begins making it speak. The battle-weary and superstitious Saul believes it to be the work of sorcery and evil spirits, but we all know it to be the wiggling of the bottle and the throwing of one's voice. This was the birth of ventriloquism. Vengeful for being put on the spot, she then goes on to tell Saul through the talking wine flask that his armies will fall and that he and his sons will be cast into the abode of the dead. And guess what? She was right. Next battle, Saul's armies are defeated, and as a direct result, he kills himself. King Saul, zero. Witches of Endor, one. This story only quickens the gut feeling that I had many Christmases ago, Ventriloquism will betray you. It was November 1985. I was sitting on the floor of my grandparents' living room. While my parents talked politics with Granny and Pop, I perused the middle section of the holy tome that was known as the Sears Catalog Wishbook. I scanned each page carefully, even though I had no idea what I was looking for. I thought that I was growing too old for the menagerie of stuffed animals that I called close friends. I had yet to bridge my adolescence with wish list items that may have been more age-appropriate for a child in the Deep South, such as a camouflage tent, duck boots, or even a .22 rifle. At most, I was a budding seven-year-old artist in a nine-year-old's body. Somewhere between Cabbage Patch dolls and GoBots, something caught my eye. The call-out was huge. Can you say, it's howdy-doody time without moving your lips? Of course I can do that! This may have been the thing that I was looking for, so I kept reading. Everyone loves a ventriloquist. Pick your favorite character and become the life of the party, instruction book included. Later, I would question my desire for this awkward toy. Through the muffled bedroom door, I could hear my father's many interesting questions for my mom about my Christmas list. 
I could also hear my mom's verbal melee in defense of me expressing myself creatively. Aware of their different parenting styles, my nine-year-old self would have known to direct these questions to the more responsible party, Sears. Me. Dear Sears, why are you selling Charlie McCarthy dolls to the children of the 80s? Sears. Market research shows us that kids genuinely love the same vaudeville characters as their grandparents. Christmas morning, 6 a.m., I run down the stairs, wake my parents, and make quick work of the wrapping paper that's keeping me from my gifts. I finally made it to the long, rectangular box that held my new, more mature pal. I open the box more slowly than the others to savor this important moment. And with the front flap pulled down, I saw it. It was a vinyl-headed, dead-eyed doll laid neatly in its own cardboard coffin. In an instant, I felt that I had betrayed my worn and familiar stuffed friends who sat waiting loyally for me on my bedspread. I gingerly closed the flap and placed the heavy box back on the floor behind me. Although a smile was placed on my face, my true feelings were still handsomely gift-wrapped in paper and sealed with scotch tape. After thanking them, my parents went back to bed and I went to my room to play with my new gifts. As I sat on my bedroom rug, I fanned out each present from left to right in order of appreciation. The dummy had not even made it to the sprawl. Curiosity finally bested me and I unboxed the toy. If the blank stare from the painted eyes hadn't clued me into why I felt so queasy, then the blonde hair should have. All of the family that was coming over later that day for our traditional lasagna lunch had dark hair, or at one time in the past had dark hair. This devil doll with a head of yellow was some sort of Rolf type from The Sound of Music. He may have been in love with Liesel, but he was fated to rat out the entire Von Trapp family. One good thing about stuffed animals is that their fur color has never been a point of derision. I'd always carefully named each of my stuffed animals. Kinderly, Cubby, and Big Eye Dog had all quickly become part of an adoptive network. We may have not been related, but by God, we were family. I dared not name this new character, for I knew he would not be staying. And although this oversized, hinged mouth abomination made me feel physically ill, I knew that soon my family would be here and they would want a performance. I had to practice. I pulled the figure to me, slid my arm inside the cadaver, and then began speaking through clenched teeth. Family arrived, lasagna was eaten, Manischewitz put away. I reluctantly brought out the dummy for my visiting relatives, tried on a voice, and then realized in front of a live audience that this gift mirrored my uneasiness of outgrowing my childhood things. After lunch, I snuck the dummy into an opaque garbage bag with the ripped wrapping paper, ribbons, and other boxes. And even though my dad didn't see me do this, I'm sure that if he had, he would have been politely silent. I spent at least one more year playing with my stuffed animals before they made their short journey into our attic. And perhaps most children who are given ventriloquist dummies are destined to sneak them into the garbage when their parents aren't looking. And maybe Sears was obligated to sell these antiquated toys due to an ancient contract between their corporate shareholders and the witches of Endor. But nevertheless, when you are home next holiday after your presents have been opened, your wine drunk, and your lasagna eaten, if it is an option, make your way into your attic, find your old stuffed animals, look at them directly in their cute button eyes, and thank them for standing beside you on your path to growing up.
That was Sam Mitchell, who's also a co-founder and host of Tin Can Stories in Huntsville and a member of the spoken word community called Out Loud Huntsville. This is A Sundial Christmas on the Public Radio Hour on 89.3 WLRH, and we're sharing with you some holiday stories from the minds and hearts of our beloved Sundial Writers community. Some 30 years ago, Judy Cameron was the first place winner in the very first Great Sundial Write-Off. Here's her prize-winning Christmas remembrance. In spite of World War II raging in faraway places, my mother somehow was managing our rationing coupons so that nearly every day, the special aromas of treats in the oven reminded us that Christmas was near. But the one thing that was very different was the added excitement when my mother announced that my big brother Ralph, who was in the Army Air Corps, had been granted a furlough and would soon be home from his station in England. The big double doors to our front parlor were always kept closed, I suppose to avoid heating it during the cold Wisconsin winter. But when the fragrance of evergreen seeped into the hall, my brother Ronnie and I lay down on the floor to try to peek through the cracks. We couldn't see anything, but cold, balsam-laden air hit our faces. We stood up, and Ronnie solemnly announced, It's the North Pole in there. And I believed him, because he was one of my seven big brothers. And sure enough, on Christmas Eve, when we returned from church, the parlor doors were open to a breathtaking sight. It was a huge tree, decorated with big colored lights and a glorious assortment of things from glass ornaments to childishly crafted baubles and lead icicles artfully hung one by one. On the top stood a big red spire, which my father called God's Finger. I don't remember what I got for Christmas that year, but I never will forget that tree. Most years, our tree stayed up until Epiphany, which is January 6th, but this year it wasn't taken down on schedule. Ralph had not come home. We didn't know why, but my mother cheerfully insisted that he would be walking in the back door at any moment to see that beautiful tree. And so it sat in our parlor. When we passed in the hall, we became aware of the effect of our footsteps. First a gentle rain of needles, then torrents. My father no longer plugged in the lights. Finally, Ornaments began to slide down the bare branches. A couple of them fell during the night, exploding on the hardwood floor and scaring us awake. Mother took a spool of thread from her sewing box and tied the ornaments to the tree. No arguments from my older brothers and sisters could convince my steadfast mother to remove that grotesque skeleton in the parlor. Our lives moved apprehensively into gray February. Then, one morning around Valentine's Day, when we woke up, there he was, sitting at the foot of the bed. He smelled like wet wool. Through my sleepy eyes, I recognized the olive drab uniform. I know who you are, I said. He laughed. I know who you are, too. Did you see the Christmas tree? He smiled a broad, satisfied smile. Yep, he said. It sure is beautiful.
That was a gem from the Sundial Writer's Corner archive, where Judy Cameron shared one of her Christmas memories. The original version of that story was the winner of the first great Sundial write-off back in 1989. First prize was Breakfast with Judy and Harry Waters, creator of the Sundial Writer's Community. And Judy says it was the beginning of her friendship with the Waters duo that turned into being their assistant during the Saturday morning broadcast. You can find this and other Sundial entries by exploring the archive for yourself on our website at wlrh.org, then look under Programs for the Sundial Writer's Corner. You can also find a podcast of tonight's episode there by looking for the Public Radio Hour. This is the Public Radio Hour on 89.3 Huntsville, our weekly mix of special programs, community conversations, and homemade radio features. Tonight we're sharing stories from the Sundial Writer's Corner. Rosalind Fellwalk spent years as the director of volunteers in a Springfield, Missouri hospital. And she has a story to tell about a couple of willing workers who were in charge of the portable gift cart. When those two men wearing their Christmas gear walked into the office, I knew I was in for an entertaining report of duties completed. These two had been partners on the gift cart since they paid their dues and joined the hospital's auxiliary. First came Jim showing a big grin bearing the money box for the finance desk. He wore his red volunteer jacket topped with a red Santa hat. Then came Charlie with the Santa hat, Santa jacket, and a pair of red oversized trousers with the ties at the waist hanging below his knees. Charlie was carrying a pillow and looked beat. He muttered, Boss lady, I need a much bigger pillow next year because this one kept falling down to my knees. Jim and I laughed, but no laugh from Charlie, the skinny Santa. Then Jim told about one unusual visit as they made their rounds to the wards of this huge medical complex. He said, We went into the first room on the fifth floor, checked the name on the door, and greeted Mrs. Howard with our ho-ho-hos. She looked at our cart and then at us with misery in her eyes and gave us no smile. She almost whispered, I don't think you have anything that can help me. Charlie said, well, Mrs. Howard, give us a try. She moaned, fellas, I'm constipated. I need an enema. We were speechless for a moment as we'd never had a request like that. But Charlie recovered faster than I did. And he said, Jim and I are giving you a free paper to read while we trot down to tell the nursing station that you need something we don't have on our cart today. He reached into his pant pocket and handed me some change for the till, and I gave her a paper. Charlie was groping for his pillow, which had fallen to his knees again, and he turned to her and said, You see, Mrs. Howard, old Santa has some problems also. She looked as he tucked the pillow up high and tightened his pants belt. That did it. She grinned and said, Thank you, as we waved to her and went to the next patient's door. Charlie chimed in, oh yes, we did stop at the nursing station and report her problem. I looked at the two men and said, you made my day, guys. I got up from my desk and gave each of them a hug and said, well, being that neither of you bachelors have someone at home to fix supper for you tonight, I will reward you for your duties performed so loyally. Here are two dinner passes for the cafeteria. Enjoy your meal and Charlie... Jim and I will see that next Christmas you have a really fat pillow around your middle. 
With wide smiles, they accepted the passes, stepped into our closet and ridded themselves of their holiday garments, and then waved at me as they went out the door, shouting, Merry Christmas, boss lady! That was Rosalind Fellwalk, who shared that story as part of the WLRH Sundial Writers Corner back in 2019. All the best to you and yours, Roz. We hope your spirits have been lifted a bit by tonight's show. If you'd like to listen again, find a podcast of this episode titled A Sundial Christmas at WLRH.org. Look under programs for the Public Radio Hour or for the Sundial Writers Corner. We'll close the show with a long-running Christmas tradition and one more visit from Catherine Tucker Wyndham and her tale of a beloved Christmas present that almost wasn't. The Christmas that I was maybe six years old, the only thing I wanted was a scooter. The only person in Thomasville who had a scooter was my friend Edith Pritchett, who was a little bit older than I was. And she had a scooter, but she was kind of stingy about letting you ride her scooter. And the only place you could ride the scooter in Thomasville on the paved sidewalk was around the Methodist Church. And I thought, well, that's okay. I'm going to get my own scooter at Christmas time. It's all I wanted. But I didn't tell anybody that I wanted a scooter. Well, Christmas morning, I waked up and looked over there where I'd hung my stocking by the fireplace and under that wonderful cedar Christmas tree were all kinds of surprises for me. But there wasn't a scooter. Well, I tried to be happy with what I had, but it's obvious that I was disappointed. And Somebody said, what's the matter? And I said, Santa Claus didn't bring my scooter. Well, in a little while, I missed my dad and he came back in the house after a while, and I heard him tell my mother, there's not one in town. And my mother heard me out so I wouldn't hear the conversation, but I did hear him say, of course I know it's Christmas, that's why I'm calling you. Well, <laughs> late that afternoon when the train came from Selma on its way to Mobile, my daddy said to me, let's go down to the depot and meet the train. Well, we often did that because it wasn't much other entertainment in Thomasville. In that cold winter night, that cold Christmas night, I put on my little coat and mittens and cap and took my father's hand, and we walked down to the depot and went in there, a big old pot-bellied stove that was red hot and people standing around it talking about Christmas and other things and Heard the train blow for Finley's Crossing and then for the double deck. And and then my father said to me, well, let's move out and stand by the tracks and see who comes and goes. And so I walked out with him. And we didn't stop where we usually stopped to check on the passengers at the train. He said, let's walk down a little bit further. So we walked a little further down the track. And train came in and stopped, and we were right by the baggage coach. 
and the door to that baggage coach opened, and there was a man standing in there, and he was holding a red scooter. And he said, is your name Catherine? And I said, yes, sir. And he said, well, Santa Claus made a bad mistake. said, he meant to bring you this scooter, and he put it off up at Al Budder, and he asked me to stop by and get it and bring it on down here to you. Well, he handed it out to me, and it was the most beautiful red scooter I've ever seen in my life. And that cold winter night, my father and I went to the Methodist church, and I rode my red scooter around and around that church as many times as I wanted to. And it was one of the most wonderful Christmas gifts I ever got. Thanks so much for tuning in tonight. We hope you enjoyed the show. I'm Brent Tannehill. And thanks to all of our Sundial Writers Corner and their current producer, Dory Nutt. All the love in the world to Sundial's greatest champion, Judy Waters, who co-founded Sundial in WLRH's earliest days with her husband, Harry, and also with Wayne Blackwell. And all the peace and love to you this holiday season. We're happy to be here with you. Merry Christmas and cheers. Cheers.